church, this is our source of strength. Our source of power is to, to declare that God is good because our circumstances may not seem good. What we're going through may not feel good, but to remind ourselves and to proclaim to God Almighty that he is good and what he has done for us is enough. And so this is how we worship, to declare and proclaim God is good. Father God, we come before you today just ready to receive your goodness. God, ready to to just be in your presence. So God, we lay down everything we brought in that's weighing us down, that's heavy, that doesn't feel good. And we simply come to look at your face, to hear from your word, and to be reminded that you are good. So would you meet us here this morning? In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay, so I have always had this thing for Southern accents. I just love them. I I really love most accents, and I think it's because when you grow up in the Pacific Northwest, where we literally have the most boring voices in the entire world, like completely void of accent, so I've always loved accents, but there's something about the Southern, I see the summer sitting over here, that I just, that I just love. And it's not just the accent, but it's, the, it's how they talk. Like, bless your heart. I mean, getting to kind of call somebody out and still come across nice, it's like the dream. I also love how they teach their kids to be respectful and to obey. From the time they're, they're little, teaching them, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And so I, I was going to teach my kids this. I was going to teach them to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. But it never took. I just, it's not our culture here. I probably didn't say it enough myself. But I did teach them two other words. Listen and do. From the time they were small and, and just learning to communicate, when I would give them instructions, I would say to them, listen and do. No arguing, no complaining, no whining, no ignoring. Just listen and do. Simple. Simple because they were little, and really that's all they could handle and understand. But simple also because really that's all obedience is. Listen and do. We also believe in a parenting style that implements immediate obedience, which means when we give them instructions, we expect them to obey, not when they want to or if they want to, but when we tell them to do something, we expect them to obey. And our purpose in this is not just to create them to be robots, that whatever we say, they just are quick to respond or to to obey anybody that ever tells them to do anything. No, we have a role in this too. And our role is to create an atmosphere of love in the home, to to act in such a way that they come to trust us and and they come to know that we have their best interest at heart. And in this way, their obedience becomes an expression of of their honor and their love for us. And so these two words are still spoken in our house. Listen and do. Only now it tends to be, you know, when they like seem to have forgotten, you know, 
And so when mom comes out with the, no, 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 listen and do, and off they go. But as simple as these words still are, the conversation that I have with them has gotten deeper because I want them to understand why. And so I'll say to them, kid, listen, I am your mom. And when I tell you to do something, I expect you to obey. But this matters to me so much more than that. What I'm teaching you is something that is necessary in following God. And so if you can learn this, your life will be radically different. Because bottom line is, God requires our obedience. And when I say obedience, I mean full obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience, it's disobedience. Almost or, or close enough or sort of is not obedience. You either obey or you disobey. You're either hot or cold. Anything in between is called lukewarm. And we know what God does with that. He spits it out. He rejects it. God calls for our full obedience. Really, that's all obedience is, is if it's, if it's given in, in fullness, not partially. So, for instance, if I tell my kids that we're having people over for dinner, and so when I get home, I need the dishes to be done. If they unloaded the dishwasher, but the, stink, the sink is still full with dishes, they did not obey. Full obedience. This is, this is what God is looking for. And so what's really grabbed my attention is that it seems as though over the last three decades or so, the church has sort of stopped talking about obedience. It's, it's not a part of what, what we teach on and what we talk about. It's not central anymore. And I think there's, there's kind of two reasons for that. One is the way that abusive authority has tainted our understanding of obedience. So when we experience an abusive power that's that's forceful or harmful or abusive or controlling or manipulative, it it causes us to become defensive to obedience. It causes us to have this, this negative connotation of obedience. Instead of being something given out of love and respect, it's something that's fear based. And so the church, in, in combat of that, has, you know, really emphasized God's love and grace and, and mercy, but, but nobody wants to talk about obedience. The second reason that I think we've sort of lost this in the church is because it seems to be seen through the same lens as a works-based mentality. That, that there's something that we have to do to earn God's love and favor and salvation and forgiveness, In fact, it seems like we've gotten to the point where the word do is almost like a cuss word in the church. The moment that we say, you know, God requires something of you, the church is so quick to say, no, 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 you don't have to do anything. It's free gift. And the reason that the church does this is because there are people that teach this. There are people in the church that teach this idea that we do have to prove ourselves or somehow earn this salvation, that it is some works-based mentality. And bottom line, that is not the gospel. God's love and forgiveness, salvation, his grace and his mercy is a free gift. We don't have to do anything but receive. 
Romans 5, 8 says that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which means before we did anything, he went and did everything. So you do not have to do anything to receive this this forgiveness and this salvation and God's love. But, and this is what I want us to grab hold of today, but once we receive this salvation, we receive the forgiveness of sins, then we are given new life. New life that Christ paid for us to have. And here's the thing about this thing about new life as well. It's new. It's different. It's contrary to our natural inclinations, contrary to the way of the flesh. It's contrary to the way that we've been formed to think, believe, and live by the world around us. It's contrary to the way the world around us is still living. And so in order to live into this new life that we have been given, we need God to guide us. We need God to instruct us on how to live in this new life. Just like he did for the Israelites. When he freed them out of Egypt and he established this new way for them to live, he gave them instructions. He gave them the Ten Commandments and then continued to to give them instructions on how to handle all these various things that would come up in life in order to set them up for success in order to help them know how to live this new way, this this God way. And so he needed them to be people of obedience because it was through obeying his instructions that they would remain in this new way and not drift back to the old way. But he also needed them to be people of obedience because God's ways are not our ways. They're above and they're beyond And let's be real, sometimes they're weird and illogical. They don't make sense to us. They seem crazy. And so he needed them to be people of obedience that whatever God called of them, they would obey. He needed them to be people who listen and do. And we see in Scripture what happens, right? When God gives them instructions, when they disobey, will they miss out? And they experience consequences. But when they do obey, God shows up in miraculous ways, in powerful ways, in ways that cause the rest of the world to look on and tremble in fear. Ways that cause the rest of the world to look on and begin to follow this God, the God of the Israelites. God needed them to be people of obedience. But being people of obedience starts with the small things. Day in and day out, obeying God. Because what it does is it builds in us this this trust in him. As we experience his faithfulness, as we experience the, the blessing and the peace and the rest that comes from obeying him. As we as we obey God in the small things, day in and day out, it builds our faith. So that when God may call us to something big or scary or confusing, we know that we can trust him and we give him our yes. And so this is really what God was forming in the Israelites in these 40 years of wandering. Pastor Dave talked last week that this first generation of Israelites, they did not obey. They let fear keep them from entering into the promised land. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the desert. 
But as their kids grow up, their kids grow up not under slavery in Egypt, but in the context of a people who are given commandments by God, who obey them, who experience God showing up for them, providing for them day in and day out. And so it's, it's this people that have been raised up in this sort of atmosphere to, to come and to trust in this God that at the end of the 40 years, God says it's time. And so this is what we read in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River and into the land that I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land I have given you. From the Negev wilderness to the south, in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all, of the, Hittite, all the land of the Hittites, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. So I want us to just pause for just a minute and recognize what's happening here. Because this is the moment that we've been waiting for so far in our God story. This moment that God made this covenant with Abraham that uh, out of him he would create a nation of people and God has and, and he would give to them their own promised land and here they're about to enter into it, to take this land that God has given them. And so he goes on to say to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all of the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instructions continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is a foundational moment. This is the moment where God grabs Joshua's attention for the sake of the people and, and gives him the charge to enter into the promised land. And in this moment, God chooses to say two things. Number one, do not be afraid. Do not let fear keep you from experiencing this like it did for your parents. And number two, Obey. Obedience will be the make or break of everything moving forward. And as we see through the rest of God's story, the biblical narrative, it is. And so Joshua, he, he prepares the people and they begin to, to work their way toward this promised land. And then Joshua, like Moses, sends spies into the land. To, to check it out, to see what it is that, that they're going to be up against. Only this time, the spies return confident, saying nothing is too big for our God. And here's why. Because when the spies entered into Jericho, they met a woman, 
a prostitute of all people named Rahab. And Rahab says to them, everybody is terrified of you because of what your God has done. See, what God does here is he shows the spies, this is what I'm talking about. This is what my promise is. If you follow my ways, if you will be my people, then I will be able to work through you that that other nations will come to see me through you and choose to follow you too. That's that's the promise. And so these spies see in in this woman, Rahab, who chooses to follow this God, the fruit of God's promise. And so they're encouraged. God does what he says he's gonna do. And so they go back to Joshua and their report, and in their report they say, Joshua 2, 24, the Lord has given us the whole land for all the people in the land are terrified of us. Everyone's afraid of us because of our God. Nothing is too big for our God. So the Israelites are ready. They're ready to trust and obey whatever it is God calls of them as they step into this promised land. And so it's their obedience that God needed. And this is really the the theme of the book of Joshua in a lot of ways, is that we see what takes place when God's people are obedient, and we see how central obedience is to experiencing God's promises. And so as as the Israelites work their way across this promised land, facing various battles, we see that in their obedience, they experience victory. But in their disobedience, they do not. And so the first city that that they come to is the city of Jericho. And God gives them very specific, but kind of weird, instructions on how to conquer the city. And so this is what he tells them in Joshua 6. We read, Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the city once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times, with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horn, have all of the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse, and the people can charge straight into the city. Probably not the instructions they were expecting. Like, you got to know that these, these men, I mean, they had their armor on, they had their weapons, they were pumped, they were amped, they were ready to fight. And God says, let's just walk around the walls and blow some trumpets and shout really loud, and those walls will just come down. This was illogical. And yet, they trusted and obeyed completely. And so this is what happens on the seventh day. It says, on the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time, they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. God gave very clear instructions. Everyone must be destroyed and do not take anything for yourself. And remember what God had promised in Joshua 1.8, if his people would be obedient, he told them that they would be prosperous and successful. And in their battle against Jericho, they were. But then you can imagine Joshua's confusion when the next battle they go into, they lose. 36 of his men are killed. And so Joshua cries out to God. And he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people living in the land hear about it, they will surround us and wipe our name off the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? But then God replies. And he says, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things I commanded must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but they have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. This is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. See, Joshua comes to God. What, what is happening? What, why, why did this happen? Why didn't you protect us, God? And God says, get up. I, I told you exactly. So clearly, Israel has sinned. They have broken the covenant. This is what I said would happen. And so they go through this process and they end up discovering that, in fact, this one man, Achan, had taken things for himself and he had buried them in his tent. And he ends up confessing, but, but Joshua was told that everything connected to this act of disobedience must be destroyed. And so Achan and his family and all of their belongings are taken to this place called the Valley of Acre and they're killed and they're buried. And they call this place the Valley of Trouble. Now this seems harsh. This, seem, this doesn't quite make sense. But we have to understand a few things. Again, God is looking for full obedience. And the Israelite people as a whole were not fully obedient because this one man disobeyed God. And God knew he knew how critical it was for his people to understand the necessity of obedience, no matter what he calls of them, because God knew what laid ahead. He knew the way that the cultures would be tempting to them. He knew the ways that they would be tempted to take things into their own hands. And so he needed his people to understand obedience is central 
to living in the God way. This seems like such a small thing, but this one act was just a gateway to greater compromise. And so as the Israelites continue to to take the territory that God had given them, we, we see that in their obedience, they gain victory. But in these first two battles, we, we are given a look into the potential that God is giving them for their future. In the city of Jericho, they obeyed and they gained victory. In the city of Ai, they, they had not obeyed and they did not gain victory. When the Israelites live according to God's plan and according to God's voice, his promises go with them. But when they choose to to disobey or they choose to only partially obey, they experience defeat. Because all of God's, God's promises are given in the context of our obedience. If, then. If you obey, then, then you will experience the fullness. See, obedience has always been the currency that, that God uses to move. It's not because he's a dictator. It's not because he thrives on control. It's not because he wants an army of robots. It's because obedience reveals our hearts. And hearts that are submitted to God can be used to do radical things. See, our obedience shows where our lordship lies. Our obedience shows whether or not we're, we're truly submitted to God's ways or if we still want to hold control for ourselves. And, and obedience begins in the small things. It begins by by being obedient to those seemingly small things day in and day out. This last fall, God God took me on a little bit of a journey to come to understand understand obedience from his heart in a deeper way. So it was during 21 days of prayer, I had been coming to God uh, for clarity and direction on something. And I was not hearing him. He felt distant. I I felt like I was getting nothing. And so I was frustrated. And so I was leaving 21 days of prayer one night, and I'm expressing this frustration to Lindsay in the parking lot. And she says to me, well, do you feel like you're being obedient? And I said, yes, I'm being obedient. I've literally walked through every door he's asked me to walk through. I'm trying to be obedient, but he won't tell me what to do. I need him to tell me what to do. I was a little dramatic, but I was, I was frustrated. But I went home, and I pulled my journal out. Because sometimes looking back, you see things that you didn't see when you first were writing them. So that's what I did. And what I saw were these really small, seemingly insignificant things that I had kept writing in my journal that, I, that God was asking me to give up or or to start doing, or to stop doing. And I kept writing them, but I was not doing them. See, I'd gotten really good at justifying away God's voice. They, they were just so small. It was no big deal. 
Okay, okay, yeah, I get that. But let's move on to the really important things. But I realized in that moment, I was not being obedient. As small as they seemed, I recognized that this is the heart of what is keeping me from experiencing breakthrough. And so I entered into a fast. On that day, I committed to God. I am going to listen to your still small voice all throughout the day. Everything you say, I will be obedient. And I put these seemingly small things into practice. I plugged my phone in downstairs and not on my nightstand. I exercised at least 20 minutes every day. And I fasted from grain and sugar for 40 days. And I was so desperate to experience this breakthrough that I'm, I'm asking God for direction all day long on the smallest of things. And he was faithful. He kept speaking all day long. And I obeyed everything, not always without hesitation, but I did. But what I realized is this voice that was guiding me through the day was so familiar. I knew this voice. I heard this voice. I ignored this voice a lot on the seemingly small things. I was coming to God for something big, something that really mattered, and I wasn't hearing from him. I was frustrated. God, you're not speaking. And yet what I realized is, oh, he's been speaking. It's just been in small ways that I've determined was not worth, was not worth it, was not big enough for my attention. See, when I, when I started this fast, I desperately needed something from God. I desperately needed God to do something for me. But I realized something about obedience that I was not expecting. And this is what I wrote in my journal at the end of these 40 days. I said, it's been 40 days since I began this obedience journey with you, God. You had shown me how deep-rooted my response of justification had become against your voice. In small ways, all day long, I simply wasn't obedient. I needed to have my mind and heart tuned back into your voice and develop a posture of immediate obedience in the small things. But God, you showed me something I wasn't expecting. The reward for my obedience was not an answer or direction, but it was you. You were the prize. Your spirit was the goal. To experience what it's really like to live by the Spirit. To develop a deep love of God and neighbor. To have my heart aligned with yours. What I gained through my obedience was you. See, obedience is not a matter of proving ourselves to God. It's not a task-oriented thing. It's not being tied to the law. It's also not a deposit that we make to gain some sort of victory or breakthrough from the Lord. Obedience is a pathway to intimacy. When I got to about the middle or so of these 40 days, I, I got really exhausted. And I cried out to God and I said, God, this doesn't feel like freedom. I, I, now that I hear your voice, I feel like I can't even move and do anything unless I hear you guiding me. And I just felt God say, and now you know what obedience is not. Don't let it become legalistic. What I realized is if I viewed obedience as this, 
as this way of trying to, to do something for God because it's expected of me, because, because I, I have to achieve something or prove something, that it will become works-based. But instead, what God wanted me to see is that he is the prize. His spirit is the prize. Intimacy with him, awareness of his heart, being tuned into his voice, freedom from my self-sufficiency. When I began to see that obedience was my source of freedom, I longed to obey, even in the small things. I longed to obey this voice. And I came to realize that I don't have to do anything. I just have to come. God is not saying to us, attention. Wanting a bunch of soldiers, he's saying, come. Come to me. Listen to my voice and obey. See, God requires our obedience for a reason, and it's because he loves us. And it's because he wants us to trust in his ways so that we can experience the fullness of the life that he has for us. And, and our disobedience, it doesn't make God angry. It breaks his heart. And we read in the book of Hosea this account of God who's just longing to welcome Israel back after generations of disobedience. This, this story of this sort of redeeming love that God longs to lavish on his people. And listen to what we read in Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. God says, but once she, Israel, has nothing, I'll be able to get through to her. I'll entice her and lead her out into the wilderness where we can be alone. And I'll speak right to her heart and try to win her back. And then I'll give her back her vineyards. I will turn the valley of Acre, that valley of trouble. Remember that place where Achan was buried? This place that marked for the Israelites their disobedience? God says, I will go to that place and I will turn it into a gateway of hope. And in the wilderness of exile, she'll learn to respond to me the way she did when she was young and I brought her out of Egypt. And I swear that when that day comes, she'll call me my husband and never address me again as my master. Husband, not master. Obedience is all about relationship, not duty. And it is through our obedience that God wants to bring hope to our broken places. Hope to those, those areas of disobedience. Hope to those things that are holding us back. He's not going to hold them against us. He wants to redeem them and bring hope to those places. Because he is a God of love. And yet it's through our obedience that we're able to fully experience that. And so we, we have to stop compromising the necessity of, of, of obedience and what it means to follow after God. It's not a works-based thing. It's an expression of our love. It's an expression of our followership in Christ. And see, it's the then, the then that, that draws us in because throughout his word, God says, then I will give you peace and rest and joy. Then I will use you to reach the lost. 
Then my spirit will be upon you. Then the way I set things up will be unleashed. Then my kingdom will be ushered onto earth as it is in heaven if you will obey and trust me and live within the way I have called you to live. It's really not that hard. And it's really not that complicated, but we have made it hard and complicated because we have let too much time exist between the listen and the do. It's that time in between where fear gets loud, where we learn to justify, where we think of all of the reasons why we don't want to do what God's calling us to do. We think of all of the reasons and all of the things we're going to have to sacrifice to do what God's called us to do. And so we end up either being disobedient or partially obedient, which ultimately is disobedience. God needs us to be people who listen and do, people of immediate, full obedience. And immediate obedience does not strip us of our freedom. It shapes us to be people who get to fall into God's love and truly experience his goodness and all that he has for us. 1 John 5, 3 says, loving God means keeping his commands. The way we express our love to God is through obedience. But it says his commandments are not burdensome. If obedience for you feels burdensome, you've got the wrong understanding of obedience. Allow God to redefine it for you. It's not about works It's not about proving yourself. It's about his love. It's about relationship. It's about intimacy. It's about pressing in to his heart. And the beautiful thing about obedience is the more we walk in it, the deeper the intimacy is that we have with God. The more more he releases more and more understanding to us because he knows he can trust us. And this is God's heart. God wants nothing more than to open up the heavens and release deeper revelation, deeper, greater power, greater victory, greater miracles. This is who our God is. This is his heart. But he needs to know that he can trust us, that whatever he calls us to, our answer is yes. He needs to know that that we are people of obedience. And remember, This is how God set things up. That that his people, no matter what he calls, our answer is yes. And when we are people of obedience to this God who is worthy, the world sees him through us. And the world comes to embrace and follow this God. Does anybody here think that our world needs to see God on display? It's through our obedience. That's how it works. That's how God set this up. So we have to be people of obedience. Obedience that begins in the small things day in and day out. As we come to trust in his love for us. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. What are those seemingly small things that you have been ignoring or justifying or pushing your way through? Maybe it's your phone. 
probably for at least half or more people, something that has to do with your phone. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it has to do with your your physical self, the way you eat or exercise or how you take care of your body. Maybe it's forgiveness. Forgiving that person. You know God is calling you to forgive, but you've justified it. You've lived in the bitterness and the resentment. They still owe you something, but they don't. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's reading his word. Maybe it's a calling that he's placed on you. Maybe it's getting into a small group. What are those those small things that God says to you that, that you're not obeying? And I want to challenge you. Commit yourself to obedience. And I'm telling you, the prize is God himself. It's intimacy. It's his spirit. And then the world gets to see him on display. And the world will come to follow this God that changed your life. He'll begin to change other people's too through your obedience. And so this morning, I want to give you a tangible way to do this. And that's simply by coming to the altar as we close in this song. Coming to the altar as an expression to God, saying, God, whatever it is you call of me, my answer is yes. And for some of you, it's going to be that voice that, that you hear that, that tells you why you're embarrassed or why, why you shouldn't come or the fear or whatever. And that's that voice. That's that voice to tune into and, and trust and push, push through the lies and obey.